This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Wendell from Level 1 Techs. How's it going? How's it going? Fun times. Gotta, yeah, gotta, so gotta, I think uh, for our non-IT nerd friends, maybe you could explain the joke about Level 1 Techs, because we, we get it, but uh, I think others might not. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, level 1 is like the bottom rung people, but the joke is it's really hard to go from Level 0. I just am interested in something to Level 1. It's like, okay, I, I can find my way here. It's like you start a new hobby. Where do you where do you go in? And technology is a lot of fun. You can automate your house. You can take back control of the cloud. You can build your career. You can do all sorts of fun things. But where do you start? Uh, level one. That I love both of those things. I love the pun and I love that. And that's so true. Most of my live streams are like that. It's me jumping into something I've never done before, looking like a complete moron for the first half hour and then figuring it out by the time I'm done. But people don't understand. You've got to fail fast. You've got to confidently fail fast at things. And one of the worst things you can do is kind of middlingly succeed at something. And it's like, no, we tried this thing. It doesn't work. It's like, yeah. I haven't, it's like, I haven't accomplished anything. It's like, no, you found a million ways that it doesn't work. You can, that's great. Keep going. Yeah. And the worst thing that you could do is just assume that you're awesome at everything. And I <laughs> yes. guess, well, that's the second worst. The worst thing you could do is that and then go on your YouTube channel and teach people the wrong way to do things. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a lot of that. And it's really, it's painful. And I, you see that in a lot of enthusiast forums. I mean, that's that's one of the, we run into that on our forum too a lot. It's like, no, the, I'm just like, mm, it's like Reddit are confidently incorrect. And it's like, well, there's a subtlety and a nuance there. And I get, I get sucked into that too, because I try to do a five minute video on something and it's like, well, okay, there's a subtlety and a nuance here where it's like this edge case we really don't want to talk about this. Like you want to talk about error correcting memory and ZFS systems. And it's like, well, that is a good idea. There is a subtlety and there's a nuance there, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. People don't want to, it's like, no, if someone's wrong on the internet, I must post. It's like, okay. Yeah. You know, it's, it's always funny trying to hit that sweet spot. Cause if you over explain something and you have a two hour video that could have totally been a 15 minute video, you're going to lose everybody. Yeah. And somebody's still going to find something wrong with it. So, yeah. you, you know, might as well just get to everybody and get them started first. You know, it seems it seems like a reasonable strategy to not treat everybody like morons and assume that they're going to Google things. But you you hope that when they're they're searching for things that it leads them back to reasonable posts or your forum posts. But there's also there's been an explosion the last few years of people that are really excited in all of the stuff that technology can bring them, whether retro and nostalgia or to just like, hey, I don't actually have to give some company money every month to enjoy media that I've bought eight or 10 times now. That's yeah. the thing. 
and so there's a there's an explosion of people posting and being excited and it's just and that's yeah, good the, that's it's good a hundred percent agree and the whole media server thing is something that i've been running since long before i probably should have been trying to make computers do that and uh <laughs> it's just it's always been really important to me because up until recently with some of the um i think it was some of the marvel movies had uh disney plus i believe uploaded better quality videos than you get on the blu-ray because it's a uh you know more of a aspect ratio filling because it's got the imax cut but mm -hmm. really up until that the only way that you can get the best consistent quality is by getting your own media and you know all right even when DVDs were a thing, did everybody have a DVD player in every room? And would you want to? Do you want to sit through the same government warning a million times that's <laughs> never once stopped anybody from copying anything in the history of time? Yeah, no, you want to press a button. That's it's one of the cardinal sins. It's like I, you know, this thing is entitled to waste my time, and it's like it's not. I want to immediately seek to, you know, minute two of episode seven of season four of Star Trek: The Next Generation. I don't need to sit through anything else. And yeah. I say, oh, we've got these pre-rolls. Oh, we got No, that's theft. You are stealing my time. Plus, how many times have you had a Blu-ray player menu crash on you or freeze yeah. on you where you had to reboot it, which is just bullshit. Yeah. Like, just yeah. give me the damn movie. <laughs> I ripped it to MKV. I saved a couple of gigabytes space because I don't have any of the garbage in there. And it's the same thing with the same audio and the same video tracks in it. And none of that crap. You just skip. So, yeah, and it's 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 going to take people like us and people like our audiences to make sure that that is formally enshrined as a legally protected activity in law, because these 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 kleptomaniacs want to not do that. It's like, oh, we must protect it. And it's like, look, I got news for you. This this crappy Blu-ray, not that important in the grand scheme of things. Mm. Yeah, no, you're totally right. So I guess to back up for a moment, would you kind of give everybody an overview of what your YouTube channel does? Because I know you do your weekly, uh, you know, podcasty style videos. You also do, you know, uh, everything, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, level one text is just we post videos about all kinds of stuff. There's three of us. There's me, Ryan and Krista. And, you know, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a nerd, a little bit of the nerds nerd. It's like well, there's something weird that's happening. It's like, I don't know. OK, let's figure it out together. And, uh, and, and Krista and Ryan and Krista does her gardening videos and all sorts of fun stuff like that. And, and Ryan sort of, uh, brings the darkness. It's like, mm, there's a lot of darkness in how this technology might be used to abuse and do terrible things. And, and we should probably keep an eye on that because we can be a force for good, but there's a lot of people out there that want to, uh, sort of co-opt goodwill and enthusiasm around these kinds of things to, uh, do bad things like the aforementioned Blu-ray which doesn't really help anybody except, you know, sort of lining pockets and that sort of thing. But anyway, we do videos on how to build home servers or motherboard reviews. A lot of the time it's hard to find a motherboard that has, you know, perfect support for Linux. And it's like, what's the trade-off here? And it's like, well, this motherboard will do this and this, but not this other thing. Or this GPU will do this and this, but not this other thing. So a lot of fun things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's such a there's such a need for level-headed people to talk about the darkness and things because I think – you know, and I'm not going to go off on a rant here. So, you know, don't strap in everybody. It's only going to be a second. But there, there are so many people that are batshit crazy that talk about actual real things. But coming out of the crazy people's face, it's like, okay, tighten up your tinfoil hat, buddy. I'm sure you know <laughs> what you're talking about there. But they're actually sometimes correct. And in it's nice to hear from, from just calm, 
intelligent people like, no, Amazon Alexa is absolutely spying on everybody. And here's the proof. And here's the people that I met that work there that I, I believe it or not, I was actually at a wedding one time and the person next to me first drink, wasn't drunk, you know, unprovoked was like, Oh, I work on, you know, Amazon Alexa. And I said it in front of my wife because I kept telling her and she thought I was a tinfoil hat wearer. I was like, oh, yeah. How often do you guys listen to people's conversations? The guy goes, all day long. What do you think we do for fun? It's a boring job. And uh, everybody at the table was like, what? He's like, yeah, yeah, we just call it, you know, testing out the services. But, you know, sometimes we've got some funny families that do silly stuff. We just flip it on and listen. And it's like, told you, told all you people. This is exactly what goes on. How do you feel about that? And. Yeah, it needs you need level headed people to discuss it. So there's a guy that made um he made a this is something after our own community, but nothing nothing I can claim credit for. Uh, there was a guy who made a brain slug. You know the brain slug from Futurama. Mm-hmm. It's a 3D printable thing with a with a, a a tiny embedded computer in it. You put on top of the Alexa and it plays noise into the Alexa's microphone until the brain slug hears the keyword and then it turns off the noisemaker so you can talk to the Alexa. And it's just it's like that's great. That's what that, that is that's genius. The, that's the level of protection that we need but it is an adversarial relationship and somebody that's been watching this develop you know since i was a teenager it's it's sort of been fun to sit back and and watch all of these things come true but it just gets more and more and more restrictive the more opportunity there is for your technology to be co-opted um to do things that are not in your in your best interest it's you know there's there was this movement in the early 20th century around planned obsolescence. There was controversy around uh, light bulbs. It's like, oh, the light bulbs last too long. Let's all agree to make the light bulbs not last as long. And, uh, and there was, you know, it was controversial. And then something happened. And now these things are basically done deliberately. And there's not, there's not quite as much controversy. There's not, there's not quite as much of public awareness, to your point, um, that these things are happening and that there is an opportunity for abuse. I mean, the technology can bring us really wonderful things without having the abuse, but you know, these, 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 these organizations just can't help but do this, this type of sociopathic behavior and shedding a light on that is kind of important, but also having fun with technology is kind of important and also being able to do, do these kinds of things on your own to be able to DIY this provides us a path back when it inevitably blows up. When Disney Plus decides they want to send something to the vault, do you want to still be able to watch whatever you bought? Or do you want it to just like, oh, I guess it goes away now. Like when when Netflix stopped carrying Star Trek The Next Generation, it's like, well, I guess I should have not wasted money on Netflix. I guess I should have just bought the DVD so that I have them from now until the end of time. Mm. And then ripped them to your home server so that uh, when the inevitable disk rot happens, you don't have to worry. You still get the thing that you purchased. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, again, it's like if, if you want me to buy a license, fine. Let's treat it like a license, which is indelible. Or mm. if you want me to buy a piece of physical media, like a book, fine. Let's treat, you know, di- digital media like a book. But you can't have it both ways. You can't have all of the sociopathic things that are good for you from both of those worlds. You got to pick one and they won't pick one. Yeah, and that's a huge thing in the video game world now because of digital downloads and do you actually own the games that you've purchased? And if you have a disc, does your game even work if your game console isn't plugged into the internet? <laughs> so there's, you know, what was the purpose of buying the disc then? So there's there's a lot going on today that involves all of that. I really hope that Nintendo's problems of uh, flash memory selection ultimately help convince uh, unconvinced Congress critters that, hey, there is something to this being able to repair there is something you know because nintendo has made all of their money nintendo should not be making as much money as they are 
on 20 year old intellectual property. And, you know, say what you want about copyright and everything else, but as someone who invents and tinkers with hardware, I can't help but notice it's like, you know, if I file for a patent on this and I do all the extensions and I pay a lot of money, I have to pay a lot of money to get my patent and do all my stuff uh, for an individual. It's not a lot of money for a corporation. They're good for at most 20 years. But copyright is life of the author plus a bunch. And if you're in the case of, you know, in the case of Disney, they're probably going to try to ram extensions through for like Steamboat Willie um, and, and those kinds of things, you know, because the copyrights on that expire in a year or two. And I just I don't I, I don't see that there's a lot of distinction between copyright and patents, especially in the modern information age. Think about like a 3D printable widget. Like you design a really cool widget that's easily accessible and it's going to be 3D printable. Um, what, uh, you know, what, what are, what are your options? You know, you want to sell it. What are your, well, you could patent it, but you could also copyright the design and you could do both. And, uh, it seems like you're going to have more protection in the copyright type vehicle than you are a patent type vehicle. And disproportionately so when originally those started out as things that were equal. Um, Funny though, I actually, uh, this, this within a year did a, a podcast with a lawyer who specializes in a lot of this stuff because there's a company that's just cloning people's designs in the retro gaming scene and blatantly doing it like cloning the box, cloning the logo and just it, you know, uh, patenting in China other people's designs that are patented elsewhere. Like, just, absolutely the darkest of the dark type of shit. And the unfortunate fact is that so many people would never be able to fight that in court because yeah. as soon as you have a company's budget or if just a company has one lawyer on staff, they could just, you know, especially if you know how to be a scumbag, you could easily just keep doing what you're doing and never really get in trouble. So it is, it's kind of an interesting thing. You know, somebody like Nintendo has the power to basically do whatever the heck they want. But, yeah. you know, if I make a game and Nintendo copies it, what the hell am I going to do? I can't afford to sue them. So. Yeah, yeah. And Nintendo will get away with with whatever they want. And Nintendo, you know, they're they're uh they're cognizant of this. And Nintendo is being very careful to aggressively pursue only the most egregious offenders. But it becomes the thin end of a wedge until even reasonable behavior is, is curtailed. Because you're going to need these same tools to repair a Wii that's lost its marbles because its flash memory is defective as somebody who's just going to blatantly pirate a bunch of games. Sorry, it's the same tool set. It's like a hammer. I can use a hammer to break into somebody's house or I can use it to fix my house. Yeah. Yeah, interesting how people really like to pick and choose what examples they use for stuff like that when you're when you know when they're arguing about this you know <laughs> yeah. you could just picture like a nintendo campaign from the 90s where they just show the evil hammer breaking people's windows and you know completely <laughs> omit the fact that you actually need that hammer to build a house in the first place but so you wouldn't download a hammer and it's like i don't something's <laughs> been lost in translation i don't, yeah, I don't know absolutely <laughs> i can download a 3d printable hammer that's actually really amazing i mean <laughs> I've, and I've literally downloaded 3D printable tools and jigs and stuff to help me do things, to help me hold connectors while I solder them or to help me quickly go through. And like that, we've got a, a project on the level one tech store to replace uh, an ancient uh, controller in Model M keyboards, Model M, the buckling spring. People got a lot of these and it's a vintage PS2 connector. It's kind of hard to find a modern um, a, a, a 
PS2 to USB adapter that can support the power requirements of a 20, 30 year old keyboard. Um, and so y- you can, you can download the schematics yourself. It's all open source. Um, and DIY it, or you can, you know, buy a kit on the level one tech store for, for pretty cheap. And, uh, it just, you take out the circuit board and you put in the new circuit board and then you got a modern USB connection and it's QMK quantum mechanical keyboard. So it's a relatively like standard customizable keyboard. You can customize your key layout. It doesn't have a windows key or anything like that, but you can remap caps lock to the, your, your windows key and shift shift like left shift plus right shift is caps lock and shift shift hmm. is, you know, disable caps lock. And so you can have a windows key without physically having a windows key and fun stuff like that. And this kind of thing wouldn't be possible in 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 a world where um that type of copyright maximalism exists um you wouldn't be able to modify a nintendo or a super nintendo to use a flash based cartridge so it's like let's enjoy third party games on a 20 or 30 year old console um to say nothing of doing it on modern consoles it's like i would like to not use you know, Microsoft's walled garden or licensing agreements or whatever, and just develop my own original Xbox game. And it's like, well, <laughs> can you do that now under the law without violating something? And it's like, mm, it's kind of a minefield. Yeah. Um, whereas think about Bleem, you know, everybody knows the story of Bleem and, you know, Sony, Sony sued the bejesus out of them and lost because it's like, Hey, you want to be able to, and that there's a lot of people that cling to that, to say, oh, this is an example of, you know, that this is okay and that we can, we, we, we have a keyhole through which we can do all of the things that we're doing now. And the reality is that it is a very tiny thread by which that Bleem was allowed to exist. And uh, I don't know if the, the Bleem case happened today. It seems unlikely that the outcome would be the same. And yet, I don't know that I can point to a specific law that would, that had, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply you know, specifically impacts the Bleem ruling that you can run, you know, emulation on a different platform and, and so on and so forth. It's like the, the real, the only problem with the Bleem thing was really just distributing the ROM from the PS3, right? Or the P or not the PS3, the original PlayStation. Original PlayStation. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of an interesting one. And that's something that we in the retro space have always just kind of held on to that and kind of move forward and, I think when it comes to the retro stuff, in most cases, if you're not directly profiting, then you know off of other people's IP, then you're pretty safe. So if you sell flash carts that come with a micro SD card that has the firmware preloaded and like a freeware ROM on there, you're cool. But if yeah. you sell that same flash cart loaded with every Nintendo game ever made, then you're probably going to get in trouble at some point. Yeah. And I, I think that's totally fair, obviously, but you know. Yeah, well, I'm I'm right there with you. I, I I think that we should have a wide berth on this, but there are people inside of Nintendo and Sony that obviously feel very differently and have a disproportionate amount of money to sort of um, chase these rainbows. I even think that something as simple as okay, twenty years have passed, and twenty—that's a lot of stuff at this point. 
20 years have passed, it should be completely okay to fully emulate literally everything in the the original Nintendo inside like an FPGA. Like we're going to make a faithful reproduction. This is not a software emulation workalike of you know, the original Nintendo or the original Super Nintendo. We're going to rebuild the original circuitry exactly as it was, but in a modern FPGA type scenario so that you can yeah, have like the original completed. gaming experience. And that's completed and that's been safe so far. Um, Brian uh, from Retro USB has the AVS. Kevin Horton originally did the first analog NT Mini. And then, of course, the Mr. FPGA project. And I think the reason is because that would fall under white room reverse engineering. So you're not stealing anything of theirs. You're just looking at what you have and reverse engineering from what you have sitting on your desk. So that is, I'm pretty sure why all of those cores are legal um, for now because nothing from the original code was stolen. But like when those Nintendo leaks came out, if somebody took, you know, if somebody just took the GameCube files and used that code directly into an emulator, that's illegal. But, you know. Well, you got to be careful with the FPGAs, though, because there are components of that that could still fall under copyright, even though the physical designs, uh, you know, like the, the physical collection of stuff um maybe you know maybe predates it like you could you could copyright a circuit layout for something like a flip-flop just a flip-flop we didn't in the 60s and this this wasn't a problem but you could copyright it's like this is how and then it's like how else are you going to build this oh it's like okay well you could use nor gates instead of you know nand gates or whatever to build a flip-flop it's like okay maybe that's new but you know like chords and progressions in music there's really only so many combinations and mm. at some point you have to draw the line of like this word and phrase is going to occur in this work versus that work. And they do largely the same thing and it, it gets into a thorny issue. It's a little unlike the, the Bleem case in that we don't have really clear case law where a company has alleged this doesn't work or this is you know contrary to whatever. And the courts have said, no, this is completely fine because it isn't codified in law that it's okay. Uh, and it shouldn't, it's, and that's not how laws work. Laws are supposed to say what you can do anything except these things. But unfortunately they're so ambiguous. You, you can drive a truck through it, which is a whole other problem. Whereas the Bleem case, I think is something different. The Bleem case was, you know, Sony put on their best show and they still lost. And, um, the same thing kind of happened with the VCR. It's like the VCR was almost illegal. Yep. Um, it was in Australia. They had to sell them without the record function. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, this is madness. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that the, there are very important functions that these things serve. And I think that Nintendo realizes for now that um, to an extent it would do themselves a disservice in their argument that like this kind of thing shouldn't be permitted. But at the same time, going forward, I'm sure that they're incorporating things in their designs, their new designs that will make this kind of thing in the future harder and harder, which is again, why this is not yeah the whole point of the patent thing was you get like okay i'm gonna come up with this new novel amazing thing boom we've patented it here you go and future generations can say yes this is not only the documentation for how to do that thing but now the rest of society can benefit because we can build on this thing and we've entered this sort of dark period where everything is undocumented and awful and made deliberately obfuscated an adversarial so that folks that really enjoy it have a harder time carrying it forward to the next generation because there's more money to be milked on it. And this is, this is the tragedy of our time. Yeah. But luckily, luckily there's a lot more of us than there are of them. 
So we can still keep doing it in the background. We just got to be very careful of how we go about doing it until we figure this out. In the not too distant future, we're going to have to get together to make our voices heard that this is a not only a permissible thing, but this is good for society. Yeah, no, it's going to be a call to arms. Look, look for it. It's going to be a thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I we seem to have strayed a bit. Sorry. <laughs> Well, I guess to bring it back a little bit more to the hardware side of things, speaking of hardware, I just got a fancy new mic stand. And as you can see, the mic just keeps falling, falling slowly. <laughs> and I got to, uh, you know, I always try to save money first. And so I got like the $18 one, which actually did a pretty darn good job for like two years. And then I bought this $80 one because I didn't want to have to buy the actual real nice one for $150. And uh, yeah, it uh, doesn't work as well as the $18 one. Yeah, That's great. Well, another thing to add on my list. But uh, speaking <laughs> of hardware, um, what do you what would you suggest for somebody who's wants a gaming rig right now on a budget? Now, there's a million videos out there that could tell you how to put together the highest powered, you know, if you have 15 grand to drop. But like, realistically, what have you been testing in the past year or so? That that's kind of more of a budget friendly thing that people uh, could use and rely on for gaming. Um. It really, like, the nicest thing that I think is the more extreme budget probably still is corporate cast-off machines that you then upgrade. And the Windows Windows 10 and Windows 11 are driving a kind of shedding of 8th and 9th generation um, desktop workstations. Certainly anything before 8th gen, because 8th gen is the cutoff for Windows 11. But a lot of those machines don't have a TPM module and the IT departments don't really care to like flash the BIOS and reconfigure it and enable it. So we've seen a ton of of uh, like Dell and HP mini towers that are like 9700, 9900. And okay, obviously. Um, you can typically get those for like 100 bucks, 150 bucks at local corporate surplus auctions. Like just go to Google, type where you are and do corporate surplus or government surplus or whatever. And you can show up and bid on things and you know don't go bid crazy and that is a good starting point those will have a crappy power supply and they won't be able to deal with any kind of reasonable gpu but about half the time i would say the power supply could deal with a gpu like a 6600 mm -hmm. and i've seen 6600s in that 200 dollar range the 200 dollar 6600 radeon rx 6600 in a ninth generation if you're starting from nothing that is a hard deal to beat because you're not going to be CPU bottlenecked. You're not going to be GPU bottlenecked. You can play about anything you want, even modern titles at 1080p on that 6600 and have a reasonable experience with reasonable settings. You might not be able to play on highest and stay north of 60 FPS, but you're going to be getting 60 to 90 FPS on just about everything at reasonable graphic settings at 1080p. And that's a nice gaming experience. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. And <clears throat> it is there any suggestion for Intel versus AMD, you know, when you're talking about picking up surplus stuff like that? There's usually not a lot of AMD surplus from that generation. Uh, all of the AMD stuff is new enough that that people are still hanging on to it. Like people are still hanging on to it. Like if you've got even if you've got like the first gen, you got a, a Ryzen 1700, even with a 6600, that's not a lot of fun for gaming. You can do it, but you're leaving a lot of GPU performance on the table. In, in a lot of scenarios, not every scenario, but a lot of scenarios. And um, a lot of people hang on to those kind of CPUs for like their home server because you get eight cores 
in a home <laughs> server that's very low power still makes an excellent media server makes an excellent you know just home server for whatever you want to do run run docker run true nas you know what whatever whatever you want to whatever you want to run at home it works fine or secondary computer kids computer something like that so i i don't see very much amd hardware um at surplus it's 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 all intel that's going to change in a couple of years because i'm you know amd's been selling a lot of machines but um for newer stuff sometimes you can find stuff on sale like if that's too you know that's too low end there are really good deals on uh, on AM4 stuff, and AM4 is generally the better deal right now, especially with stuff on closeout. If you want something that is basically top shelf performance, but not top shelf dollar, if you can still find a 5800X 3D on the order of $300 and you build a system around that CPU, that's AM4, that can't be beat. I mean, that is a it's eight cores and you get the V cache. I mean, it's going to do anything you want, even if you go all the way up to a 4090. Yeah, so funny you mentioned that because building a system around a CPU, the next component that you're going to want to pick up is obviously the motherboard. So step one is very simply make sure it's the right socket. That's a, kind of a no-brainer. But I, I kind of, uh, you know, for years I was deep in this. I worked for a company that designed medical-grade computers, so I knew absolutely everything about everything Intel motherboard and CPU related from like 2005 to 2012, basically. And I've kind of fallen off a little bit, but getting back in, it was kind of funny to see some of the same patterns, I guess, is the best way to put it. So a bunch of motherboard companies advertise certain specs. Not all of them really perform the way that they advertise as, or you can't use all of the features at once and stuff like that. So is there, you know, are there brands to avoid, brands to stick with? Um, Asus's support drove me absolutely crazy. Uh, so I don't see myself buying one of their products in the future in case something goes wrong with it. But, you know, maybe, maybe I just got unlucky. So, well, I got a, uh, my favorite, my favorite, I've, I've, I have been on the struggle bus. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Um, I was helping Steve at Gamers Nexus and we were looking and my Crosshair Hero AM5 motherboard, um, was was juicing the the uh 7800x 3d on the soc uh and that that's that that has led to some some of the catastrophic failure and some of it might be you know not clear communication from amd some of it might be just amd saying or uh, asus saying we could just up the soc voltage and have better memory stability so let's just run the soc as hot as we can all the time and that's that's bad when in vcash scenario because that the soc rail is shared with other stuff that and then, then there was a bit of a kerfuffle about that. Um, Maya, the thing that the, the, the only experience, the, the most recent experience that I've personally had with Asus where I was in, in kind of a teeth grinding situation was I had the Asus Dominus. This has been a couple of years ago, uh, which is the motherboard for the W3175X. So this was Intel's fire breathing CPU they demoed in 2018. You couldn't actually buy it until I think the spring of 2020. So there was like one little retail blip where it showed up at, in like September of 2019. So over a year later, and then in the spring, there were a few more chips. And so I got I got one of the retail chips um, that spring, and I got the Asus Dominus motherboard, which I think is the motherboard they demoed on stage with the chiller. So it's 5 gigahertz, 28 cores. It's like, this is going to be amazing. Spoiler alert, it wasn't amazing. But that, that, that board ran for a long time. Uh, well, seven or eight months which is not a long time. Well, it's kind of a long time for me because I'm kind of hard on things. And then I turn it off to do something. It is a custom loop and I turn it back on and it wouldn't, it wouldn't come on. It's like, hmm, that's weird. 
And so uh, I was like, ah, you know, it happens. RMA went through support, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and mailed it in. They checked it out. They said it passed all the diagnostics. And I was like, well, did you find something wrong? Did you fix it? And they're like, no, it's, it's good. We're sending it back. I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, whatever. Maybe it's a language barrier. Maybe they're not understanding the question I'm asking. Get the system back, put it all together, which with the giant CPU, huge pain in the butt. Because, I mean, it's a giant motherboard. I mean, I even had the Asus ROG uh, Lee and Lee Dynamic 011 XL. Like, I got the, I got the hmm. package kit. And um, they didn't fix it. And it was still doing the same thing. So I sent it back yeah. again. And they're like, oh, sorry about that. We'll figure it out. And then I looked at it again. And they said, yep, we, fi- we found the problem. It's fixed. Send it back. Send it back. Still broken. Send it back a third time. And they said, there's nothing wrong with it. It must be your CPU. And I was like, well, I mean, okay. Okay. And so I got another one, another CPU. And that one did the same thing. And, uh, and so I started doing my own diagnostics on it. And uh, lo and behold, it came on. I got it to come on. I got it to come to boot and everything was good. I was like, okay. And I put it all back together and it didn't work. And it turns out that it has the opposite of a cold bug. It has a warm bug. And so if the motherboard is warm, it will boot and be fine. If the motherboard is cold, it will not boot. And um, uh, almost the same almost the same week or two weeks, a group of users reached out to me and said, hey, we bought a bunch of these for our day trading operation. We're having this weird problem. And it's like, funny, you should mention that. Because I'd been posting on the forum, I guess, and Google had picked up, like, here's my journey of stuff that's happening. And um, it turns out that there was a, a resistor you could change, like, a, after a bunch of, like, head scratching. And so I changed the resistor, and that fixed it. And it was just like, this is not, like, Joe <laughs> Rando idiot changing a resistor should not. Like, why was this happening? And it turned out that the warehouse or wherever they were fixing these in California was not air conditioned. So it's a little warmer. Uh... And so they would get the board in and it would be fine. And then I would be in my, you know, 68 degree beer fridge. And it's like, it's not working. I don't understand. Why is this not working? And the one time that it did work was just happened to be warm in the office from some other reason. That's why it, it worked. That's so funny. uh, Stories like that drive me crazy. We had uh, 500-something computers uh, recalled because they just wouldn't boot. You know, everything would be working fine, and then all of a sudden it would freeze, they'd go to reboot, and the hard drive wouldn't be found. This is back with, you know, 5200 RPM, 2.5-inch mechanical hard drives. And we tried to figure everything out. And jokingly, you know, I went on site because it was, you know, I was project, project manager, and I slapped one of it in the side, and it booted. I was just being a wise ass. I didn't, you know, I was I went, all right, well, it's got to be mechanical. Then let's figure this out. Come to find out there were these little short, you know, four inch long SATA cables we were using on the inside and the plastic was expanding and contracting with heat. And it was just, you know, the pins were just shifting enough when it got hot enough to, to mess it up. And then, you know, just unplugging and replugging or smacking the machine got it. So we actually had to send a notice out that said, smack the back of the machine right about where it's mounted on the arm if this happens and let us know and we'll come replace it. But it's all just because of a cheap connector. <laughs> yeah. And then and it was but- totally my fault too because I was the one that picked that cable because I was working with MSI computer. I was in their office in Taiwan 
And they're like, okay, well, what color cable do you want? I'm like, I don't really care. Just whatever's the cheapest. It's all the same price. <laughs> well, fine. I want it blue then. I was just, you know, I was just being a dick. And they were, <laughs> they were like, um, okay. So I guess they had every color except blue and they had to source it from another manufacturer and they didn't just fess up and tell me that and the, they got it from a cheap manufacturer and that's that was the whole root of the problem. So, yeah. It's madness. It's just complete yes. madness. <laughs> and uh, it's it's like they have clips. It's like I should have got one of the cables with the clips, but that was probably three cents more. Uh, this These did have clips. That was, that was the even more messed up part. So you'd <laughs> think that they were in there nice and snug, but nope. Nope. Um, see, you see. mentioned before something that I uh, I had done that I loved was that, you know, the surplus stuff, you know, also one thing to mention, you know, there are some reseller stores that, you know, that all they do is surplus. And I've, I bought a bunch from a few over the years and most were actually very good. You know, one sent me the wrong power supply, but it was super cool. You know, it was a laptop and, you know, they worked with me to get the other ones. I've had really good luck with those. Um, and I've had machines like I got a Xeon workstation that was very expensive for nothing, a couple hundred bucks. And it lasted. It was my main machine for like two years. It was yeah. great. And, you know, on 24-7, rendering video five days a week. Really, you know, a good work machine. But the only issue I've had with those is very often there's a lot of proprietary stuff. Yeah. So that HP workstation, it, you you actually couldn't put it in another case because there were things built into that case that it would search for as the computer booted and there was even some dell workstations that i had got where the motherboard was atx but you would have to cut and resplice some of the power connectors because they wanted you to only use dell rated parts and all that and there was garbage stuff too so do you have any any experience with that and you know are people just basically stuck with the the same cases recently or the power supply is swappable it usually um it does. You have to look up the model. It's always a good idea to Google the model and like replacement power supply to try to figure out if it's a normal power supply or not. Almost always the small form factor machines are something proprietary. That doesn't mean you can't get, you know, on eBay or a secondary parts store. Like you can find somebody selling a compatible power supply that you're not going to have to pay the full replacement price for. But that is a worry. And a lot of the time in the workstations of the more powerful machines, you know, you can run into situations where the CPUs are locked to the vendor. So a Dell server, for example, those CPUs are typically locked now where you can't take the CPU out and use it in something else. It must be a Dell. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Smart people will up. probably defeat that before too long by flashing bits of the, the the part of the computer that says I'm a Dell is not really super protected. So it would be it's kind of possible to bypass all of the signing nonsense to be like Joe random motherboard is a Dell. Um, mm. but it's a, it's slightly trickier, but with things like OEM signing keys leaking, it's like, Oh, let's fix that. Uh, which has happened to both Dell and MSI and <laughs> some other companies. So it's kind of like, mm. um, desktops, you see it less, but it still can happen. You, you can still have a desktop class CPU that is locked to a particular vendor, Dell or HP or whatever. And so that's that makes it not fun to even just to harvest the CPU out of it. Because if you get one of these machines, it's a hundred dollars, and it's got, you know, uh, you know, an eleven seven hundred in it or something. It's like, well, is it is the CPU worth a hundred dollars? Ah, yeah, probably. And then you just you know you can put an i three or something in it, and then resell that for a hundred dollars, and then you got a CPU, and you just it's worked out. But it it does only do that if you have a lot of time to really do your homework and figure that stuff out because nobody wants to mm. 
And sometimes those reseller places will figure that out for you. And it's like, hey, you've got a dead machine. You know, you got any parts? You got any extra CPUs? They always have extra CPUs and RAM. It's a good tip. I wouldn't have even thought of that. Have you been following everything that's been going on with the MSI leaks and all that? Yeah, yeah. The signing key thing is sort of it's not it's not a super rare occurrence, but um it's not great uh that, that leaked. It's gonna be possible to for malware to use that to appear to be legit and bypass um boot time protections on the machine, which is not good. Is that something we've seen exploited in the past? Yes. Uh this isn't the first time these type of keys have happened, but uh the fact that these keys are used even on, you know, 12th and 13th generation systems is a, perhaps a little bit of a problem. Mm. The last time I remember it happening, it was for older systems, not really old, still in production, but, or, um, or at least still in circulation, I guess is a better way to say it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, that was always kind of an interesting, always interesting to see what, what's going to come of that stuff, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's not good for users. It's always bad for the users. Yeah. <laughs> it's like how are we how do we protect against this kind of malware? And it's like, well, do you have another computer? <laughs> this is your banking computer. This is your, you know, your other computer, and this is your other other computer. And again, surplus is great. It's like you get the, you know, that 87 that i7 8700 running a modern version of Ubuntu. That is a great banking computer. It is fabulous to just do all your, and then your gaming lives over here. Cause I don't trust Denuvo. I don't trust any of that stuff. I don't, I don't trust a lot of the steam games add more stuff beyond steam to the nth degree. Very frustrating. And it is, it's getting tougher and tougher to get that to work in a windows virtual machine on a Linux host. That's because I, I have really have to do some Herculean things to my Windows virtual machine to hide the fact that it's virtualized. Because all these games are like, I'm really paranoid you're cheating. That's nonsense. Absolutely. I mean, there probably are people that are cheating. But at best, that's slowing them down. And at a cost of really annoying a lot of paying users. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually something uh, some friends of mine are really digging into. They're working on the, they're calling it FGCOS, Fighting Game uh, Community Optimized System, not Operating System, everybody gets that wrong, but it's basically a, a script that you run um, and it completely disables everything that's not necessary on your Windows-based machine. And they're getting latency uh, latency numbers that are significantly different than before. You run it to the point where it's a bigger upgrade than like changing your CPU type of thing. And it was pretty impressive to see, but a lot of the things that you wouldn't expect to add latency absolutely do. And that, you know, I'm just, you know, obviously that opens some security issues, of course, but I'm all for, if you're serious about gaming or if you're a shop that has tournaments, then, you know, dual boot the machine, boot it into the FGC side and then, or just boot it into general if you need a general PC and don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a little it's a little bit more tenable when you approach things from from that kind of a perspective. I mean, for my for my main phone, I don't even trust apps. It's, I kind of keep it kind of locked down. It's like, oh, you should install a bunch of apps on your phone. Nope. Mm. Oh, you don't have TikTok on your phone? No. <laughs> Strangely, no. <laughs> no, what a surprise. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, I've somebody told me I need to start posting on there and tagging stuff just to try to. Um, you know, get more social media clicks. So I use web or a browser-based software 
to post. I don't, I don't actually have the app. I don't think I've ever installed it on my phone. <laughs> and so that's how I get onto TikTok is through, you know, through a web browser. Yeah, so that, somebody here in the, in the office does something similar and I don't even like, I don't even, it's like, I don't even want it to, I, I don't even want it to use the AI thing to like figure out where I am or do anything. I don't even have the, like the Twitter app. I've never had the Twitter app and I, and I, and I have a Twitter account and I post there and I just, I do it all over the web and, and it, the web version of it is kind of broken. Um, mm. For a while I was actually using uh, the uh, remote desktop a type connection into GNOME into a web browser to do that. And I just had, and it was actually more convenient because like the way that Android does its app switching, instead of having the browser tab nonsense in Chrome, which is infuriating, I just had it as its own app. And so I could hit that and it's like, oh, this is the remote connection to this other machine that's already just logged into Twitter. So whenever I want to go look at Twitter, I just go to this app, but it's not an app. And so right. I get the same app experience without having to deal with the browser. Because I think that, I think, I, think, I really think that uh, Alphabet or Google or whoever is deliberately making Chrome annoying to use for web pages that you have open a lot. It's just like, no, you just need to use that for ephemeral things. And then otherwise you need to get the app. And it's like, I don't, I don't want the app. The web is functional enough. Apps are, it's like, we need to create this privacy framework where you can see what an app is doing and sandbox each app so that it doesn't have access to each other app's thing. And it's like, well, we could we could do that. We could reinvent that wheel, or we could just do everything in progressive web apps, which are already sandboxed from each other and your data in exactly that way. Yeah, it's uh, kind of in- it's kind of interesting how we fell down that rabbit hole because when you know when the iPhone first came out and the jailbreak community stepped up and there was a bunch of really cool things on there, it was the only way to do it. And it was pretty awesome to be in that scene and to kind of be at the forefront of that. Even just stuff like adding five icons to the bottom instead of four or whatever. It was, you know, it was neat. And then as things started to progress, I have most of my stuff on my phone as bookmarks. So it's, you know, it's your tab problem, but that doesn't bother me. I rarely use any apps or anything because just I don't understand the point of so much of it. I don't yeah. want notifications for almost anything at all. Yeah. And that would be the only advantage for me. Yeah. Yeah, there's others. It's a, it's astonishing how many apps think that they're important enough to have a notice. And it's like, look, if I if I'm awake or if I'm if I'm working eight hours a day, and I only and I check my stuff once every hour, that's only eight things that I check. Uh, only only eight times I have to look at something a day for five or ten minutes, and then do triage and notifications, and then I can go on to the next thing. And if you have interruptions that you deal with more often than that. It is a recipe for non-productivity. Like I can't, I mean, I can switch gears really quick in my head for that kind of stuff, but it's just exhausting to switch gears that many times. And people yeah. get, people get weird about it. It's like, no, I have to be able to do this. Like some of the, some of the people that I work with, you know, doing the computer janitoring thing, it's like, no, you have to respond immediately. And it's like, mm, do I though? Do I? <laughs> so since I got you here, I got to ask uh, a personal question for my own setup because I'm sometimes really selfish, but I imagine there's somebody listening that this will be helpful to them as well. USB hubs have been driving me crazy lately because I have USB 10 gig per second ports on my PC. And if I plug a USB 3.2 flash drive into it, I'll get 600 megabytes a second uh, transfer speed. But if I put it through a USB you know, 3.2, 10 gig per second hub, it drops to 40 megabytes per second. Yeah. 
And is it, am I just buying shit hubs? Is there something wrong with my motherboard or what? And the way I'm testing is just doing that with crystal disc mark. So is my test method, is any of my, is any of this my fault or is there just uh, you know, shit USB hubs out there these days? USB is, is a little bit of a dumpster fire. And also we've had a USB chip, it's USB chipset shortage for the better part of two years. I haven't been able to get, reasonable sized batches of, of like KVMs out the door just because the, the, the chipsets that have been available in the market have all just, they fail val- just basic, basic validation tests. So I've got a little suite set up where I do, you know, uh, uh, audio latency, deferred procedure call latency, um, IO, like doing an IO operation from a Samsung, like a T seven or whatever, external hard drive while playing audio and there's stuff in the codec, there's stuff in the USB stack to deal with those kind of things to do fair queuing and quality service and control and all that in a way that's transparent to the user. Every single one of these chipsets does not implement that correctly, especially the ones that actually run at 10 gig. And it's more hmm. apparent now because we finally have computers that are fast enough to saturate those 5 and 10 gig buses. And so that's why it seems like it's gotten worse lately. One, the chipsets, they really are actually legit garbage. And two... Um, Computers are fast enough that you you actually notice. Um, the USB ports on your motherboard are also vary a lot. The highest quality by far uh, USB ports on your motherboard come directly from AMD CPUs. There's some USB resources that are available directly on the CPUs, usually two, two or three ports. Um, most motherboard manufacturers realize that and they route them to the front panel. And the reason that they route them to the front panel is because most USB chips are designed to be a centimeter away from the connector. They're not designed to be at the end of a cable. And mm. so when you use the front panel connections on your motherboard, it can compensate for the USB cables in your case being hot garbage, which is very often the case. Um, and so a lot of the time people are in this impossible situation where if you used a high quality cable to go from your front panel connections to your rear I.O., those USB cables are going to be the best and most reliable USB ports that you have, period. Um, especially like the USB-C connection on modern AM5 CPUs and to a lesser extent, the 5 gigabit. Not every motherboard does that, but a lot of them do. Um, there are a couple of Asmedia chipsets that are designed to, 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 for this signal integrity, signal-to-noise ratio, that uh, the, the operating level, I guess you'd call it, to deal with a, a, a front panel cable. Those are okay. Some, you see those a lot on Asus motherboards. Asus seems to put a lot of, of, of work into, um, into, uh, into that aspect of their motherboard. Um, but those have generally all gotten better. So like X370, the best USB ports were the ones from the CPU. Even the ones from AMD's chipset, which is kind of sort of as media, uh, weren't, weren't always fabulous. Um, and, but MSI and ASRock and, and Gigabyte have gotten a lot better about realizing that and, and dealing with it. Um, one way that Asus dealt with it is they, they would put onboard USB hubs. And so you got to look, you got to, in Windows, you got to go to tree view and see how your stuff's connected. You would generally want to avoid a USB port that is on an on motherboard USB hub to connect to another hub. You want it to be in its own root port is what that's called. And so, um, that's a good idea. Generally, the USB-C ports are not in a hub. So if you have a USB-C 10 gigabit to 
10 or 5 gigabit hub. That's your best strategy. Uh, Sabrent, good brand. Anchor, also a good brand. Anchor is, is meant for power. Like, they're a lot of USB ports, and they have separate power control and separate. So they're meant for, like, phones and commercial installations and so on and so forth. So it's not... There are features in that scenario which I think make them not ideal for the desktop use case. And Sabrent bridges the gap. And Sabrent's kind of a new up-and-comer. I don't have as much experience with those, but Sabrent and Anchor have very rarely let me down on their brands of stuff. So that's nice. Maybe give those a try. But also don't be don't be bashful about trying different physical ports on your on your motherboard and, and making notes because it, it makes a much larger difference than most people realize. So I only have two 10 gig USB ports on the motherboard, although supposedly there are some on board as well for front panel connectors, which my case doesn't have that because you can't hook up a 3.0 front panel connector to a a 10 gig, you know, 3.2 motherboard header, right? You'll drop the speed. Yeah, but you can get a breakout cable. So and it'll go to a slot. So those are cheap. So I was, that's, you know, you just gave me that idea to try that. But the main reason I needed a hub wasn't actually because I needed more ports. The two is all I would need for the high speed stuff. It's just that I don't want to walk around to the back of my PC every time I want to plug something in. So my thought was the same as it was with USB 3.0 in that I could have a 75 foot USB cable. If I got the power coming from the plug very, very often, I get the same speed. And uh, it's not the case now at all because I can't even get it with a, a two foot cable. Yeah, there are a couple of transceivers in the in the market that are optical. And so if you search for optical USB 10 gigabit extension, um, you might find the appropriate cable. But there are also counterfeits of that one because it's in hot demand. So good luck. <laughs> uh, there are 140 bucks. Yeah. I just had to Google it. Yeah. <laughs> but optical, you know, when we're talking about more than, than, than five gigabit USB, optical. It's getting to the point where the copper quality is so bad that it's hard to source DisplayPort cables that are truly DisplayPort 1.4 compatible. DisplayPort 1.4 is 32 gigabit, and it is very, and it's supposed to have, you know, this much signal to noise overhead. But most mm-hmm. modern cables, most modern copper cables is more like this. And the mm-hmm. design of the level one text KVM is such that we're predicated on having this much signal to noise ratio because by the time you get through the, the KVM, you've got this much signal to noise ratio because of just the physical connectors in the thing. And so it's like, oh, we've gotten so good at bending copper that now the copper cables are like up here. And so it's, we're banging against the limits of it when you need to do 4K, 120 hertz, 444 chroma. We can, we, the KVMs have no problem with it, but the K, the signal in and out of the, uh, the KVM through the cable plus the KVM, that's a little bit of a problem. And um, so optical display port cables are also just better. And if like, if you're a gamer and it's like my, my monitor is weird and cuts out, even if you're not using a KVM, it's worth the 60 bucks to order a fiber optic display port cable. 99 out of 100 times it's going to fix it. Hmm. That's a great piece of advice. So, hey, look, my selfish question did actually probably answer some people or solve some people's problems who's listening. But <laughs> yeah, that's uh and what about even shorter extension cables for, I, I guess, uh, for USB? I mean, is there a 10 gig three foot extension cable that's worth a shit or is it just hit or miss now? Just like everything else. Yeah, it is complete hit and miss. I would rather it's it's so bad. I would rather spend the money on the $150 cable and be sure that it's not going to be a problem than get, you know, a three foot extension and deal with it. The one mm. exception to that is 
um, are those front panel cables because they haven't really been corrupted by, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's just Amazon and other companies, you know, because like line must go up and they have more people in their marketplace and they just don't look at customer complaints or they let the customer complaints, the, the vendors sort of evade the customer complaints. But it seems like you have enough customer complaints. It's like this product doesn't work as advertised. They would get kicked from Amazon. But the reality seems to be that's not the case. Yeah. Um, you know, if you carried a, a, a product in a brick and mortar Walmart and Walmart got a lot of returns on your product, Walmart is not going to carry a product anymore. That, that doesn't seem to be the case with, with the internet. Um, for whatever reason. And so it's just all use your Amazon return policy liberally. Yeah. I'd never abuse it. Like I'll never buy something, review it and return it. Like I just, that's my moral thing. I could never do it. But if I buy something that's not working, it's getting returned here. Yeah. And you know, I am the first person to admit, Hey, maybe I'm testing wrong, but here's how I tested. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. And if yeah. you can't, then I don't want to hear it. So yeah. Yeah, if I send you with like like with Asus, if I send you two pages of exactly what I did to test because I don't want to waste your time because I've been on the other end of it, and you respond with, "Have you tried another port?" You could go fuck yourself because <laughs> I just sent you all of the hours worth of work that I did. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a, it's like that with add-in PCIe cards too. So like with the VFIO, where it's like I want to run a Windows virtual machine under Linux, blah blah blah. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's really nice to be able to stick in a PCIe card that gives you four or six or eight. USB ports, but the chipsets that are there for that are also not really well, not really good. We used to have a, a list, a small list of hardware, and then you know a couple of users posted. It's like, hey, I ordered this one, and it's like, I oh, didn't order the right thing. And I looked at pictures of it, and I was like, holy crap, this is a clone of the one that's good that's using the chipset that's bad. And so you get into this impossible situation of, I would like to tell you to go buy this thing but as soon as i do that for something that's inexpensive like a usb controller you could you can design your own and then order it and have it made in china and shipped here and you don't know if you got counterfeit chips or not until you test literally every single one of them and so if you order a thousand of them you know and they mix in 10 or 15 that have bad chips or bad whatever just so their margins a little better and it's like, oh, it's just the defect rate. And it's like, yeah, but that seems a little high. And when I look at these and the other ones, I can sort of visually see that the laser etching on the chip is different. And so if there was somebody that was that was worth their salt and quality control, they would have caught this without me having to test a thousand of these. Yeah, that's a problem I constantly talk about. And that, you know, this is why you want to avoid some of this junk or that's, you know, if you are on a budget, you have to go in understanding, you know, you buy that HDMI splitter on Amazon for for 20 bucks. If you get a good one, that's a holy crap good deal. But yeah. you're probably going, you know, one out of 10 people, it's not going to work right. And you're going to have to return it. And you might be able to just have the same exact seller send you another one. And if you take a picture of both of them, you pop them open, you might actually end up with a different unit with yeah. that return. So that's yeah, frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, it's you, you, everybody has to be an incredibly sophisticated consumer to deal with all this, which is insane. Yeah, it's frustrating. I mean, that's why, 
you know, not to toot our horns here, but that's why we need people like us to do all the work <laughs> and, you know, hopefully <laughs> make our living through affiliate links, but we do all the work for everybody. So <laughs> it's still adversarial though, because I've, I've had, I've definitely had the situation where it's like, okay, here's the thing that I ordered and this is amazing. And then it's like, oh, we need a, a bunch more of those. And it's like, wow, the quality's really gone down here on this thing that I reviewed six months ago. What's going on? Yeah. So Thunderbolt. Oh yes, that you, was a you, you did a lot of amazing testing on Thunderbolt, and that was a really that was a really good. Case. You found something that I would not have realized off the top of my head, so that's very good. Ah, thank you very much. It's uh, unfortunately that's the story of my life. My old boss used to say, "If you you know if you think something's unbreakable, send it to Bob; he'll break it." So uh, <laughs> yeah, that's um. So I guess after after I released that video, a lot of people stepped up and kind of pointed me to very hidden documentation definitely not on the thunderbolt main page and all that stuff shockingly yet thunderbolt's uh twitter account didn't respond to that one even though they responded to lots other bs that i've tweeted about um but i think what it comes down to is total bandwidth and realistic maximums i think that's kind of it so thunderbolt three um the one question, though, the one thing that I still can't come up with an answer for is I've seen people do hard drive speed tests over Thunderbolt 3. So single device over Thunderbolt, not daisy chained. And they were getting higher data rates than would be required for 4K60 444 capture. So, but the, it was right on the line. So maybe the answer is just simply that it comes so close to the line that you know it, it, you're not going to be able to hit that or i just it didn't make sense to me and my nerd brain was going crazy so i think the the you know it, okay brass tacks that are both three and thunderbolt four in terms of data performance exactly the same there's a tiny asterisk there because there are a couple of really pedantic neckbeards that should know better than this but it was the case that with thunderbolt three because it's older than methuselah that you could have two lanes of Thunderbolt 3 and still get your Thunderbolt 3 specification. No one has done that since 1865. But yes, I guess technically that is a bandwidth difference between Thunderbolt 3 and Thunderbolt 4. Uh, you're welcome, crazy neckbeards. But other than that, there's not really any kind of change between Thunderbolt 3 and Thunderbolt 4. Pretty much all of the implementations of Thunderbolt 3 of, of, of the last millennia have been the four lane implementation. And actually, most people don't realize that Intel did a fab tour a couple of months ago for 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 other folks, and they demoed 80 gigabit Thunderbolt 3. And as another sort of caveat there, it's like, oh, it's a higher data rate. Nope. Same data rate. USB-C is double-sided. Fun, fun experiment you can do if you have a USB-C thing that is malfunctioning. Flip the cable on both ends. You may find that it suddenly mysteriously starts working. And that's because there's like a hair or debris or your connector's a little worn out on one side but not the other. It's also uh, the 2x10 gigabit is literally just USB-C with 2x10 gig connections connected on both sides to different USB root ports as opposed to what they normally do, which is connect the top and bottom side to the same USB root port. So it doesn't matter which way you have the cable oriented. Whatever, but anyway, Thunderbolt does have a, an eight-lane standard where you have all eight lanes connected in the top and bottom of the the thing, and they've never done that because they're asleep at the helm. Thunderbolt four is the same, and all data rates and all this other stuff. Thunderbolt three is a theoretical maximum of forty gigabit. Reality, it's four PCI Express three point lanes with some overhead and a little bit constrained memory mapped I/O and a little bit of 
management overhead for management packets that it also puts on the bus to be able to manage the endpoints. So it really is PCIe 3.0, four lanes, blah, blah, blah. And there's no buffer. It's just a bus. Uh, the devices can buffer, but the bus doesn't buffer. The Thunderbolt controller doesn't buffer. Um, and so that is a theoretical maximum of amount, about four gigabytes per second. Same as a PCIe 3 by 4 lane SSD. Now, most capture cards don't do any kind of compression. The kind of capture cards that do onboard compression are usually USB because that's only five gigabit. It's like you have mm -hmm. a, there are 4K60, such as the ones from uh, Epifan, which are, mm -hmm. I, I use those, they're pretty good, uh, uh, that can do 4K60 capture, uh, but they do it over USB. And the reason they can do that is because there's a hardware compression chip in there and it's sending less bandwidth. Uh, I think you looked at the Avermedia. Um, somebody sent me the Datapath cards, the twenty five hundred dollar ones, the you know the the ones that are really pro, and the Avermedia Live Gamer four K, and both were exactly the same performance over Thunderbolt, and both worked when done internally. And there was a whole lot of other stuff involved. You have to use the right codec because codecs that work perfectly with fifty thirty six p at sixty frames per second won't work in 4k 60 it's kind of crazy there was a lot of other stuff that that kind of i had to butt heads with before i got to that but yeah it was both of those that and they definitely do not do any compression on there yeah there's no there's no compression there's no buffer there's no anything and so in that when we're talking about that it's not just a question of bandwidth but also latency and an io overhead so there's this idea of um how many clocks there's, you may have seen it in, in certain BIOSes. It's like, how, what's your PCIe latency timer? 32 clocks, 64 clocks, 96 clocks, 128 clocks. Basically, it's how long is your bus? Um, and so with Thunderbolt, because you've got repeaters and you've got this Thunderbolt bridge thing, uh, the, the, the overhead of that factors into it. There's also this idea of memory mapped I.O. And the memory mapped I.O. region on Thunderbolt is typically smaller than what you get on, um, what you get on uh, regular PCIe peripherals. And this is also an overlap with resizable bar, like the whole resizable base address region, again, is another thing that's related to memory mapped I.O. And what memory mapped I.O. is, is you have a peripheral that the computer tells it, you can access this region of memory, just do your thing and then let me know when you're done. And so the capture card will copy, let's say, 64 or 128 or 256 scan lines of whatever it's reading into memory and then it'll fire an interrupt to the computer and say, Hey, go pick that up. And then the computer will say, okay, I've picked that up. Now we're ready for the next thing. And so there's this square dance of I'm filling the buffer. The buffer's full. Okay. I've got the buffer. Here's your thing. Okay. I'm filling the buffer. I've got the buffer. Okay. Here's your thing. And so the amount of, of buffering on the card is very tiny. So, you know, 64, 128, 256 lines. It's not even a full frame. Um, and if something happens with the timing or something happens with the bus, then you're going to miss that. And so what I suspect is happening on the really expensive card, because they're designed to be very low latency. If you have a card that's designed to be very low latency, it's not going to have a huge buffer. And it figures that it's not the bottleneck or the bus is not the bottleneck. And a lot of the time in the documentation for those cards, it'll say, oh, this will support operating in a two lane configuration, but we don't recommend it. Or it'll support operating in a blah, blah, blah lane configuration, but we don't recommend it. Uh, and I think even the Avermedia card is only two lanes, not four lanes. Mm. which even even is a stronger suggestion that it is a timing and latency problem more than a bandwidth problem for why it has to do that. So the memory mapped IO region is also potentially smaller on the Thunderbolt setup, although that can be overcome with software settings. But also you have a little bit more latency 
in a PCIe timer situation, um, which could cause problems with those cards. Now, what I wanted to do, I didn't do my homework to get a chance to test this because I've only got, I've got two Magewell PCIe cards that we use in production. And I didn't have enough, we didn't have enough time to take one of those out of one of our production machines and throw in a Thunderbolt closure, enclosure and see what it does. Because the Magewell cards tend to be pretty forgiving of those scenarios because, not because it has hardware compression on board, but because the people that design the Magewell stuff sort of know that there are going to be weird edge cases like this where there's something wrong. And the Magewell cards, in my experience, have been a little bit more, more forgiving if you don't give it the PCIe lane configuration that it's natively set up for. Um, and I think it's also a PCIe 2 signaling rate, although don't quote me on that. I'm not 100% sure of that. Um, so like four lanes of PCIe 2 should be fine with PC- four lanes of PCIe 3 ba- bandwidth as you have in Thunderbolt 3. And so it might be that Magewell would work over Thunderbolt 3, maybe possibly, but that's something we need to test and see if that actually works. Um, but cars, it, cars that do onboard compression. The other thing that kind of bugged me, if if that's the case, though, how come Blackmagic didn't figure that out for their Thunderbolt device? Because <laughs> they <laughs> well, built that from scratch. Well, they probably well they didn't build the chips from scratch. See, they have to depend on somebody for their frame grabber, and they have to depend on somebody for their thing. Unless they do it with an FPGA. Like if you did this with an FPGA, I'm sure that you could fix it late in the cycle and be fine. But um, if they're using a standard PCIe chipset then they would have probably been, they, they should have caught it in testing and said, oops, we can't support this. That should definitely have been in the testing suite, but it was probably also in the specifications for the chipset that they used for the frame grabber to just be like, we read from the sensor, we dump the thing, we send it on. Because nobody invents that from scratch. That's somebody yeah. made the silicon to do that. Funny though, they they just, they took the cheesy way out and they they cap it. It's just like um, the Live Gamer Bolt that did the same thing. They just say, nope, the maximum capture is 4K50. That's it. And that's, so. that's great. The Magewell cards can do uh, 2560 by 1440 at 144 hertz. And wow. they, a- they added firmware support for a, a lot of those oddball resolutions for, for gamer stuff. But Magewell doesn't really sample or or loan cards or anything like that and they are fantastically expensive i don't think they're twenty five hundred dollars a card they're like a thousand dollars a card we're fortunate that some kind soul in our audience was like i bought some of these for a project for work and we ended up not doing it and there's nowhere to return these to would you like to buy them for half and i said here's your money <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah thank you kind yeah. soul data paths prices i think are because of their quantities they sell yeah. only into digital signage and you know very specialty things so i think that in a lot of their stuff is fpga based so i think that's kind of you know they, they never meant they never wanted to be the company that sold a 200 hundred dollar card although who knows maybe they'll kind of see a hole in the market but you know it's funny that entire video all started because the retro tink 4k is coming out probably next year 2024 and I wanted to make sure that I was able to get 4K60 uncompressed captures for when I do my comparison shots. And then I said, okay, well, I'm running out of slots on my motherboard. Maybe I could put, because the, the data path vision, the stuff for analog capture will not work in a Thunderbolt enclosure because of a, um, the PCIX bridge. You could only do it on Linux, not on Windows. Yeah. I'll ask you about that in a minute, too, in case you have a fancy workaround. But so I said, OK, what if I just put my live gamer 4K in the Thunderbolt enclosure? 
And then I started to think, well, I know there's definitely a handful of creators that want to do these comparison shots and it would apply to modern consoles. So let me kind of do this research for them as well. And when I got to the, the end of that video, I was so tired because I was you know, juggling 10 different projects and I'm playing the video back. And on the third revision I did, I realized how many times I said gigabit and gigabyte and, and, and flipped them. And I said, you know what? This is a negative income video. I'm making zero money on this. <laughs> Most of my subscribers aren't going to give a shit. My fellow nerds are going to really appreciate it, but like I'm losing money. Fuck it. I'm leaving it in there just to drive people crazy in the comments. And that's exactly what happened. A handful of people were like, Hey, Bob, you know, you know, you got it wrong, right? Like my friend tech was like, you might want to, you might want to change that. I was like, uh, uh-uh, uh, I'm leaving that in. And people <laughs> did lose their minds in the comments. And I'm like, okay, at least I got a laugh out of this one. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would never have guessed that it was so on the margin for, um, uh, for that kind of thing. Uh, I never, I never would have guessed that it would be that much of a problem for cards that are uncompressed just because mm. usually there's enough buffering on the card to be able to deal with that. Usually there's enough that you don't, there's a, there's a, the, the designers kind of deal with that, that if it works well enough, it's like, Oh yeah, you can totally do this. And especially when you look at it, it's like, this is a PCIe two, it's not a PCIe three. So it's gotta be timing, sub timing or, or base address region, you know, memory mapped IO related. Somewhere. I think that completely sounds like the issue. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I appreciate you putting the time in to think about that. Cause that was kind of, that was something that was driving me nuts. And I just wanted to know the answer. I, I didn't even expect a solution. I just really wanted to know. And that sounds exactly like what it would be. I want to, um, I, w- I definitely want to try the mage Ball cards. Cause if any cards can do it, it's them, but you can't thunderbolt is also a lot of the time. Thunderbolt implementation goes through a chipset that also only has four lanes. And so it's like a daisy chain USB situation, but with PCIe, so your CPU connects to your chipset and then your chipset, you know, has the Thunderbolt chipset connected to it. And so like sometimes the link between the chipset and the CPU is also only four PCIe lanes on Alder Lake and Raptor Lake. It's eight lanes, which is great, but on anything that's not that it's not. And so you could be bottlenecked by, because literally any other peripheral connected to the chipset, which is most of your USB ports and your Ethernet card, uh, will eat into the bandwidth that's available for the card. So you, there's a lot. There's a reason that a lot of people were using X299 based systems for these PCIe capture cards because they're direct CPU PCIe lanes as opposed to that. And there is a there is a workaround if you have some kind of a PCIe slot and you need to break it out. That's Oculink connectors. Um, the guy that does all the GPD when reviews, the Fox, he did the Oculink thing and it worked so well. The GPD people were like, yeah, we'll just add Oculink because it's better than Thunderbolt because it runs at PCIe 4 speeds. That's how asleep at the helm Intel is with Thunderbolt. It's like we don't even have <laughs> the you know PCIe 4 signaling rates. Like that is the lowest hanging fruit here. Like a team of two people and like a million dollars could have gotten something that's PCIe 4 signaling rate out the door from Intel, but they were just, you know, they dropped the ball so hard that we're still struggling with PCIe 3 speeds, even on Thunderbolt 4, which is inexcusable, in my opinion, for a company as large as Intel and probably already has something on their roadmap to get us there for that speed. Yeah. Yeah, I just made a note. Now I'm going to make a. I'll make it a point to look at the Oculink just for the hell of it, just for fun. But you can uh, you can get an M.2 to Oculink or an M.2 to Gen Z connector, which will drive PCIe four and five speeds 
but the, finally we're getting to a point where you can break out a cable or an M.2 slot back into a PCIe slot. So if you want to turn an M.2 into a PCIe 4 lane for a capture card, that's your path. Huh, I have an extra, I have a spare slot and a, a M.2 slot. That's pretty awesome. And then you're then you, then you'll have to worry about does this M.2 slot connect directly to the CPU or does it go through the chipset? Because if it goes through the chipset, it's like, uh oh, it's sharing bandwidth with all the other stuff that's going through the chipset. I need a motherboard block diagram to know. And then we have those level one text. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. You know, since uh, since you mentioned it, you're, I, I saw you uh, you uh, perk up when I when I saw it or when I mentioned it. So let me just ask: Have you run into that PCI PCIX to PCIe bridge issue? over thunderbolt um that that would happen if you're using a, a bunch of older pci express cards over thunderbolt yeah it's not it's not guaranteed to work and it's because they can't all agree the the card design is not such that it necessarily has a programmable way of dealing with what memory mapped io region it wants to use some pcie pcix cards uh don't want to use certain memory regions some of those cards were never designed for machines that have more than four gigabytes of memory and so it wants to do memory mapped io at the end of memory where no one would ever have memory and it's at like 4.2 gigabytes and it's like well guess what you've got more than 4.2 gigabytes of memory it can't use ram it's treating it it's an it's an io region that's not really ram that kind of sort of is ram but really isn't ram and so it's doing I.O. in this area like as if it is physical memory, but there's not supposed to be real physical memory actually underneath it at that address. And if there mm-hmm. is, you can't get at the physical memory after that address. So the system says, this is dumb. I'm not going to just I'm going to turn on this peripheral because it's trying to do I.O. in the middle of real system memory. And God knows what's there. The annoying thing is that it works perfectly in Linux. Yeah, yeah. Because Linux is like, caveat all right, whatever. Is it's not a uh, hot plug. You just have to boot your PC with it plugged in, but that's yeah. it. Yeah, Linux doesn't care about such things. Is there any like third-party homebrew driver to try for that? You know, is there did some some random Joe post their own PCIX to PCIe bridge driver that you could try? Or it probably would be possible to fix that on Windows, but you would have to put Windows into the uh, self-signing mode so that you can write a kernel driver or. Uh, sign a driver sign a device driver um that windows would be happy with so like a kernel mode device driver that just reserves that region of memory to use for io is probably what you would need to do there um so probably not a huge deal for somebody that knows those words but i wouldn't know how to do that off the top of my head mm. but the signing part is easy well the signing part is not easy it's annoying but um uh the actual like map the driver make it work due to io um, should be pretty easy for somebody that does that all day long. It's probably an afternoon project. Hmm. It's funny because I imagine Databath could do that fairly easily, but they don't want to because then they'd have to support it. And I don't blame them one bit. Yeah. I don't want to start. If I were them, I wouldn't want to start supporting fringe cases that might might be one tenth of a percent of their install base for that card. So yeah, I don't. I would say no if I were them as well. It might be. Um... It might be the case that they're looking at a Windows driver signing requirements and say, this is annoying and stupid. That too. Yeah, it's gotten so much harder to just run unsigned drivers on Windows. It used to just be a couple of quick fixes. Now with Windows 11, it's a massive pain. Yeah. Funny enough, too, in my, for whatever reason, the monitor that I got won't display in 480p. So if, you, if it's over DisplayPort. 
and I have, uh, but it's also one of the monitors that doesn't have the newer HDMI specifications. So I have it plugged into my graphics card with the DisplayPort cable so I can get 4K 144. <laughs> so every time I need to get into the BIOS, I need to switch over to an HDMI cable. So it's it makes things like, you know, uh, booting into safe mode and stuff like that, just a giant pain for me. So. EFI boot, If you do you have CSM disabled or CSM enabled? Can't remember, to be honest with you. Because how that works is also affected by your your BIOS ROM on your graphics card, and there there might be a, an update, a firmware update for your graphics card to, to change the way that it works, which fixes that. But also, if you disable CSM, uh, a lot of the time BIOSes will try to run in native mode so that it's crisper and sharper, and like ASUS BIOSes will try to do that so that it runs at nineteen twenty by ten eighty natively, so that it's sharper. And sometimes that fails. And because that fails, you get in a situation where you think your BIOS isn't working, but it is working, but it's trying to run at the higher resolution that doesn't really perfectly work with your monitor. So if you switch to a different input or you switch to a different thing, then it falls back to not the 1920 by 1080 native like crispy mode. And the easiest way to tell is like if you press F2 to enter BIOS, if that looks like terminal font where like the pixels are the size of postage stamps, it's like, oh, that's not the, the crispy mode. Whereas if it's razor sharp text, that's like, oh, that's it's in it's doing the EFI ROM crispy mode BIOS thing. So um, if I boot with an HDMI cable plugged in, then I get it seems to be higher resolution, seems to be running in 1080p. And if I boot with the display port cable plugged in, I get um, some interference on the screen for until it actually hits the Windows login screen. Yeah, so it's trying to initialize the DisplayPort uh, port. Is what it sounds like is that you have CSM disabled, and you it is trying to initialize the part of the EFI ROM that will make the DisplayPort thing run at 1920 by 1080, so that you get crispy mode text. But something is failing, probably a bug in the EFI of the monitor, which may be fixed. I mean, EFI of the, the graphics card, the part of the ROM that's handling the EFI, um, which may be fixed in a BIOS update for the graphics card. That's interesting. I just got a 3060 card. I think another Asus one, to be honest with you. So I don't even know if they have a BIOS update for it, but I'll look into that. A tech power up is like the, the most amazing repository of such things. And it's like, what is this? It's different. I don't know. Let's find out. Tech power up. Yeah. I'm taking notes for all this stuff. I'll, I will leave all of it in the description for people who want to uh, follow along to all the, the stuff we've been nerding out on. Um, well, I don't know, man. I could I could just talk for hours about nerd stuff, but this is, you know, we're just over the, you know, hour and change mark. So this is always usually a good time to kind of start winding it down. But uh, this was fun. We should definitely do this again at some point. And I, you know, we should, I'll pay attention to the comments and see what people want us to talk about. But I, I would love to do a follow up as well. Just the same thing, nerding out over random computer stuff. <laughs> that sounds good. It's a lot of fun. I did. I did bring one. One. One thing to wind us out. I did bring one piece of retro technology. This is my my HP 100 LX Palm Top. Oh wow! It's an 8086, and it runs on two AA batteries. You can. It'll last for 40 hours on two AA batteries. Let me let me bring up a DOS prompt. That is amazing. When was that released? What year? Uh, it's like 92, 93, something like that. Jeez. Uh, so it has a multitasking system where you can like there's a personal information management things there's a phone book and all that kind of stuff 
but it's also DOS underneath. So if you want to run Lotus One Two Three or Pocket Quicken, you know, there you go. So like if I do DIR, you know, there there's my C drive. So I have to ask. I think I would get lit on fire in the comments if I didn't. Have you run Doom on it? <laughs> no, it's too old to run Doom. You, I, I, I know, I'm being a you, you can barely run Wolfenstein. Just barely. That is awesome. What a neat little piece of equipment. And I'm not, you know, I don't remember if it's the, uh, there's a version of Wolfenstein that'll run, that they made run on older stuff. So I'm not 100% sure if this thing r- runs the original Wolfenstein or if it runs the the Wolfenstein that's been modded to work on even older machines, which is nuts, but the, the display is 640 by 200, four levels of gray, which is an absurdly high resolution for something so incredibly ancient. But it's reflective. It's a reflective LCD screen. And I always go back to, when can I get a handheld computer that is going to run on two AA batteries for 40 hours? Like, what level of computation can I get? Is that going to be like Pentium three levels of computation? Cause I could run Linux. I'll take it. Can I cram a raspberry Pi in here? I've gone so far as to prototype replacement motherboards that will fit in this clamshell. This clamshell has some design flaws, but I've gone so far as to prototype replacement motherboards that will fit in here and, and use the same keyboard connector and use the same display connector or to try to source displays that will physically fit in uh, chonkers here because that's not it's pretty thick i mean we can, we can get there but then would give me a raspberry pi compute module or something like that and i can't the, the power like just doing the math on on um the power part of it i can't come up with anything that's going to last more than like eight or ten hours and i want i want like it, it goes back to cell phone design like we end up having to just take a cell phone like the pine phone and gra- mm. cram the guts of a pine phone into something like this to get more than a couple of days of battery life out of it. Well, I mean, there's that famous story about when other cell phone manufacturers heard about the iPhone. They're like, it's bullshit. It could never happen. The whole thing would have to be one big battery. And the whole thing is one big battery. So, it's, <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's funny, but it's unfortunately true. It's with all this power that we're getting, processing power, you know, it's, uh, we need more battery power to support it. Yeah, the uh, I, I do I do have a uh, serial connection. It's not internal, but I did get so far as is like, is this going to actually be usable? So low speed wireless through the RS two thirty two port as a serial terminal into a Linux machine running, you know, text terminal email and text terminal other things is not entirely unusable, but it's not fun. Yeah, that's still awesome though. That's a, a very cool piece of retro technology right there. <laughs> I like seeing those. Can run PC World and PC USA. It runs the Oregon Trail like a champ. That's it. That's I a, bet it does. That's about the limit of what it can do, though. Oof. Give that a try. <laughs> try not to die of dysenteries. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me. It's been awesome. Thank you for being on. Um, other than your YouTube channel, which will obviously be linked, where are there other places that people could find you or that you prefer people find you? Uh, we got the Level 1 Text Forum, forum.level1thenumber1text.com. And there's a, we got a pretty active community there, and it's a fun place to hang out. Awesome. I will be joining as soon as this call is over. So <laughs> thanks again, Wendell. Much appreciated. And hopefully we'll be doing this again at some point soon. Thank you. Take care.